Blog Talk Radio. My name is Ellie, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hey there. Hope you're having a good night. I am. Snow again. Yeah. (laughs) Jean has the night (laughs) off tonight, and Catherine is out there tweeting away, and so we're sending them lots of sober love over the airwaves. We are also joined tonight by Lisa, who is a nationally certified recovery coach, and Lisa has been on our show before, actually more than once, but we're always really happy to have her back. So, hi, Lisa. Hi, everybody. Glad to be back. Glad to have you. On tonight's show, we're going to talk about interventions, what they are, who needs one, and how to go about doing one. But before we begin, we want to reiterate that we are not counselors or medical professionals, and anytime you are seeking help for your addiction or for a loved one's addiction, we strongly encourage you to seek professional help. And we'll get a little bit more into how you can go about doing that later on in the show. We also wanted to mention that on this show we use the term addiction interchangeably to refer to both drug abuse and alcoholism. Now, when someone is struggling with an active addiction, it impacts the whole family and everyone who loves them. Because the symptoms of the disease of addiction are behavioral as well as physical, it is an extremely helpless feeling to watch your loved one destroying their lives for a substance, whether it's drugs or alcohol or both. Denial is usually a huge component of active addiction, and so attempts to reason with an addict are futile. It is hard to know what to do, how to help, and many people choose an intervention to help their loved ones stop the vicious cycle of addiction and get their loved ones some help. But first, where to begin? On the first half of tonight's show, we're going to share details with you about who needs an intervention, how to go about staging an intervention, who should attend the intervention, what to say, and much more. On the second half of the show, we're going to talk with Lisa and her capacity as a recovery coach and share some real-life intervention experiences. We want to say that most of the information that we share tonight comes from the Mayo Clinic's website, which is www.mayoclinic.com. It's an excellent resource for information about all aspects of addiction. So let's begin. It's challenging to help a loved one struggling with any type of addiction. Sometimes a direct heart-to-heart conversation can start the road to recovery, but when it comes to addiction, the person with the problem often struggles to see it and acknowledge it. A more focused approach is often needed. You may need to join forces with others and take action through a formal intervention. People who struggle with addiction are often in denial about their situation and unwilling to seek treatment. They may not recognize the negative effects their behavior has on themselves and on everyone who loves them. An intervention prevents your loved one uh, sorry presents your loved one with a structured opportunity to make changes before things get even worse and can motivate someone to seek or accept help. But let's start with the very basics. What is an intervention? An intervention is a carefully planned process that may be done by family and friends in consultation with a doctor or professional such as a licensed drug and alcohol counselor or directed by an intervention professional known as an interventionist. 
It sometimes involves coworkers, clergy members, or others who care about the person struggling with addiction. During the intervention, these people gather together to confront the person about the consequences of addiction and ask him or her to accept treatment. The intervention provides specific examples of destructive behaviors and their impact on the addicted person and their loved ones. It offers a prearranged treatment plan with clear steps, goals, and guidelines, and it spells out what each person will do if the loved one refuses to accept treatment. An intervention is based on the premise that your loved one is the least qualified person in the entire family to determine diagnosis and treatment. Until families decide to do an intervention, the addict's preferred course of action will be to continue to drink or take drugs. Almost all addicts are convinced they can, and probably repeatedly say that they will, stop on their own. This is a symptom of the disease, and it can be one of the most frustrating. The addict's brain is effectively hijacked by the disease of addiction. So even if they aren't physically addicted, the emotional addiction is too powerful for them to stop on their own. Until the addict is willing to accept responsibility for the addiction, things will continue to get worse, eventually ending with the addict in jail, institutionalized, or dead. Amanda, I'll turn it over to you. Um, Okay. So when is it time for an intervention? Families almost always call about an intervention when their loved one's lifestyle comes to a point where things are spiraling, spiraling out of control and the addict's actions are affecting the family as well as themselves on a grand level. If a family is seeking consultation for an intervention, usually things at home in the addict's life are not going well. Don't wait until your loved one hits rock bottom because by then it may be too late for the abuser to accept help. It is not true that you have to wait for your loved one to be arrested or have some other dire consequence before an intervention will be successful. If your loved one continues to use drugs or drink despite repeated negative consequences in their life, whether they are physical, emotional, legal, or all three, it is time to consider an intervention. So why should you consider an intervention? Interventions are needed because addicts make their families believe they are the problem. An intervention program teaches the family to recognize the addict's attempted manipulations. Families always want to know what will happen if the intervention fails. Interventions are often successful, though, because it is not not that the addicts do not want to stop, it is that they do not know how to. Interventions help the family confront the situation and help your loved one become willing to accept help through accountability and responsibility for the addiction. So how does a typical intervention work? An intervention usually includes the following steps. One, make a plan. A family member or a friend proposes an intervention and forms a planning group. It's best if you consult with a qualified professional counselor, addiction specialist, psychologist, mental health counselor, social worker, or an interventionist to help you organize an effective intervention. An intervention is a highly charged situation with the potential to cause anger, resentment, or a sense of betrayal. Two, gather information. The group members find out about the extent of the loved one's problem and research the condition and treatment programs. The group may initiate arrangements to enroll the loved one in a specific treatment program. Three, form an intervention team. The planning group forms a team that will personally participate in the intervention. Team members set a date and location and work together to present a a consistent, rehearsed message and a structured plan. 
Often non-family members of the team help keep the discussion focused on the facts of the problem and shared solutions rather than strong emotional responses. Do not let your loved one know that you are doing this until the day of the intervention. Four, decide on specific consequences. If your loved one doesn't accept treatment, each person on the team needs to decide what action he or she will take. Examples include asking your loved one to move out or taking away contact with children. Five, make notes on what to say. Each member of the intervention team describes specific incidents where the addiction caused problems such as emotional or financial issues. Discuss the toll of your loved one's behavior while still expressing care and the expectation that your loved one can change. Your loved one can't argue with the facts or with your emotional response to the problem. For example, begin by saying, I was upset and hurt when you drank, um, and then give a specific example. Um, six, hold the intervention meeting. Without revealing the reason, the loved one is asked to the intervention site. Members of the core team take turns expressing their concerns and feelings. The loved one is presented with a treatment option and asked to accept the option on the spot. Each team member will say what specific changes he or she will make if the addicted person doesn't accept the plan. Do not threaten a consequence unless you are ready to follow through with it. Seven, follow up. Involving a spouse, family members, or other or others is critical to help someone with an addiction stay in treatment and avoid relapsing. This can include changing patterns of everyday living to make it easier to avoid destructive behavior, offering to, partici- to, to participate in counseling with your loved one, seeking your own therapist in recovery support, and knowing what to do if relapse occurs. A successful intervention must be planned carefully to work as intended. A poorly planned intervention can worsen the situation. Your loved one may feel attacked or become isolated and more resistant to treatment. And uh, we mentioned earlier in the show that oftentimes we recommend that you consult an addiction specialist if you are considering an intervention. And consulting an addiction professional, such as a drug or alcohol abuse counselor, social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist, or interventionist can help you organize an effective intervention. A substance use or addiction professional will take into account your loved one's particular circumstances, suggest the best approach, and help guide you in what type of treatment and follow-up plan is likely to work best. Often, interventions are conducted without an intervention specialist, but having expert help may be preferable. Sometimes the intervention occurs at the professional's office. It may be especially important to have a professional attend the actual intervention to help you stay on track if your loved one has a history of serious mental illness, a history of violence, has shown suicidal behavior or recently talked about suicide, or may be taking several mood-altering substances at once. We really want to underscore that it's especially important to consult an intervention professional if you suspect your loved one may react violently or self-destructively. And who should be on the intervention team? An intervention team usually includes four to six people who are important in the life of your loved one. Your intervention specialist can help you determine the appropriate members of your team. They could be people in your family member, people in your family or friend. Sorry, they could be people your family member, friends, or friends love, respects, admires, and depends on and likes, and may include adult relatives, coworkers, or community leaders such as clergy members or teachers. Do not include anyone who your loved one dislikes, has an unmanageable mental health issue or substance abuse problem of their own, might sabotage the intervention, 
or may not be able to limit what he or she says to what you agreed on during the planning meeting. If you think it's important to have someone involved but worried that it may create a problem during the intervention, consider having that person write a short letter that someone else can read at the actual intervention. Now, how do you find a treatment program to offer at the intervention? Depending on the severity of your loved one's behavior or condition, it may be appropriate to ask him or her to seek support from a group such as Alcoholics Anonymous or other 12-step program or other organized program of recovery. Often, an evaluation by an addiction professional helps determine the extent of the problem and identifies appropriate treatment options. More severe problems may require admittance into a structured program, treatment facility, or hospital, and we'll get into that a little bit later in the show. If a treatment program is necessary, it may help to initiate arrangements in advance for admittance. Do some research and keep in mind these points. One, ask a trusted addiction specialist, doctor, or mental health provider about the best treatment approach for your loved one and recommendations about programs. Two, contact national or state organizations, online support groups, or local clinics for treatment programs or advice. Three, find out if your insurance plan will cover the treatment program you're considering. Four, find out what steps are required for admission, such as an evaluation appointment, insurance pre-certification, and whether or not there's a waiting list. Five, be wary of treatment centers promising quick fixes and avoid programs that use uncommon methods or treatments that seem potentially harmful. And lastly, if the program requires travel, make these arrangements ahead of time. Consider having a packed suitcase ready for your loved one. And how can you help ensure a successful intervention? Keep in mind your loved one's problem involves intense emotions. The process of organizing the intervention and the intervention itself can cause conflict, anger, and resentment, even among family and friends who know a loved one needs their help. To help run a successful intervention, don't hold an intervention on the spur of the moment. It can take several weeks to plan an, an effective intervention. However, don't make it too elaborate either. It may be difficult to get everyone to follow through. Plan the time of the intervention. Make sure you choose a date and time when the addicted person is least likely to be under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Do your homework. Research your loved one's addiction or substance abuse issues so that you have a good understanding of it. And actually, I just want to add here, um, I I think it's really helpful for the the members of the intervention intervention team to talk about their experiences because um, um, addicts often hide their problems from different people. We're really good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> appoint a single person to act as a liaison. Having one point of contact for all team members will help you communicate and stay on track. Share information. Make sure each team member has the same information about your loved one's addiction and the intervention so everyone is on the same page. Hold meetings and conference calls to share updates and agree to present a united team. Stage a rehearsal intervention. Here you can decide who will speak when, sitting arrangements, and other details so there's no fumbling during the real intervention with your loved one. Anticipate your loved one's objections. Have calm, rational responses prepared for each reason the addicted person may give to avoid treatment or responsibility for behavior. Offer support to your loved one that makes it easier to engage in treatment such as arranging child care or attending counseling sessions with him or her. Avoid confrontation. Deal with your loved one with love, respect, support, and concern, not anger. Definitely not a time for anger. 
Be honest, but don't use the intervention as a forum for hostile attacks. Avoid name-calling and angry or accusing statements. Stay on track during the intervention. Varying from the plan can quickly derail an intervention and prevent a helpful outcome for your loved one, perhaps worsening family tensions. Be prepared to remain calm in the face of your loved one's accusations, hurt, or anger, which is often meant to deflect or derail the conversation. Ask for an, an immediate decision. Don't give your loved one time to think about whether to accept the treatment offer, even if he or she asks for a few days to think it over. Doing so just allows your loved one to continue denying a problem, go into hiding, or go on a dangerous binge. Be prepared to get your loved one into an evaluation to start treatment immediately if he or she agrees to the plan. If your loved one refuses help, unfortunately, not all interventions are successful. In some cases, a loved one may refuse a treatment plan. The addiction person may erupt in anger or insist that he or she doesn't need help and may be resentful and accuse you of betrayal or being a hypocrite. Emotionally prepare yourself for these situations while remaining hopeful for a positive change. If your loved one doesn't accept treatment, be prepared to follow through with the changes you presented. Often children, partners, siblings, and parents are subjected to abuse, violence, threats, and emotional upheaval because of alcohol and drug problems. You don't have control over an addicted person's behavior. However, you do have the ability to remove yourself and any children from a destructive situation. Even if an intervention doesn't work, you and others involved in your loved one's life can make changes that may help. Ask, ask other people involved to avoid enabling the destructive cycle of behavior and take active steps to encourage positive change. Thank you. And wow, that's a lot of information that we just covered, and we know that it can be hard to digest all of it. And so we're going to spend the remainder of the program um, on a more conversational basis, and we definitely want to turn the conversation over to Lisa to talk about what we've just outlined and go into more detail. And we can also share some of our own personal experiences that we've had both receiving and giving interventions. So, Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do in your capacity as a recovery coach? Sure. Thanks, Ellie. Um, Well, I'm a person in long-term recovery myself, and um, I'm also a uh, recipient of an intervention um, that sort of led me on my path to seeking treatment and um, really completely changing my life to... um, to just find a way of life that has made me such a better mother, friend, um, manager, work associate, really every aspect of my life. And um, because of that, I had decided that, um, you know, that there was a path here that, I, you know, we typically hear about licensed drug and alcohol counselors. Um, but, there, you know, the term recovery coach is not something that, um, you know, it was talked about 20 years ago. It's relatively new, and there's a really even a couple of different types of recovery coaches. Some are more peer recovery um, coaches, which, uh, you know, the person could identify with, whether it be somebody sort of in their same age bracket who would have the same substance issue, um, and or more of what I do, which is 
in professional capacity, which is, you know, it can adjust to sort of any age, gender, um, and, it, you know, the, the primary goal of recovery coaching is to sort of say, okay, now you've made this decision to make some life changes, let's set some goals and keep on track. Um, so it's it's life goals. It's it's sort of learning that, um, you know, whether it be your, your personal life, your work life, um, my personal focus is more in the professional arena and what does that look like Um you know, I was a, a high-performing executive for a lot of years, um, with and with a, and, and did pretty well, um, even when I was in active addiction. So when I, you know, I kind of looked at it, there was it, for me that there there was a lot of um, social situations, which include sort of whining and dining, as as well as um, you know, whether it be golf or everything. And it's sort of like, how do you re-enter the workplace? Um, as a person that, you know, no longer participates in those types of activities. So that that's primarily what I function on. And, you know, the, the goal with the recovery coach is to say, is to keep it, you know, if you hear the term of people, keeping it in the day, um, and to set some short-term goals and long-term goals. Um and sometimes, you know, unfortunately, you know, and it, it it all sounds great, but unfortunately relapse also, which this is the role of a recovery coach, can take place. Um, it's not a requirement. It, it's certainly, but it does happen. And so the role of a recovery coach is to say, okay, so this happened, we need to get back on track, um, get, you know, the person stabilized and get on my right track and, and sort of make some adjustments, whether they work a 12-step program, um, get them involved, you know, in sort of the what kind of healthy activities, whether, you know, in taking up new healthy activities, whether it be yoga. Um, you know, the, the disease of addiction is a, is a threefold, physical, mental, and spiritual. So the goal of the recovery coach is, to kind of break down each aspect and individualize the treatment plan and um, check in. So it's it's face-to-face. It's taking people um, to different, you know, to, to different appointments. It's, um, it's fine-tuning. It's a constant game of fine-tuning uh, to make sure, you know, whether it be professional or personal or if your loved one is a, is a student, you know, that can offer challenges in itself. So that, um, you know, in interventions, I guess, you know, which is the topic here, is, you know, can take place also not just as a person who has a, a problem, but also interventions can take place um, with a person in recovery who may have fallen off track, um, whether it be relapse or even a prelapse so to speak, to say, hey, listen, we're, we're seeing some real scary things going on. Um, you know, but the the whole thing, I guess, that I would point out is um, care and compassion. Uh, that is the primary uh, in, for a successful intervention. Um, with the exception of sort of, you know, there's a few different models, and we can talk about that, what you folks just described um, is considered the Johnson model, which is sort of typical what people know about. 
Um, and sort of the last resort would be if a person is a danger to themselves mm-hmm. or others, um, and intervention could involve the courts as well to, to say, you know, this person needs to seek treatment and, um, you know, that they're, they're at the last stop. But the goal would be is to not hit that point. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's not too early to um, don't wait. I mean, you know, there's that fallacy of waiting for a person who's hit the bottom or, geez, they're just not ready. And the reality mm-hmm. is is um, you can bring a person's bottom up to them. And, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that, oh, sorry, Lisa. I, I just wanted to back up for a second because there's something that you said that I think might be um, helpful to touch upon, especially for people that are listening that are considering an intervention for someone that they care about. Um, you know, you you underscored the importance of love and respect and compassion um, and concern for the loved one's addiction. What sort of advice do you give, or would you give to family members or loved ones who are really who who want to help the addict and who think an intervention may be the right route to go but are really struggling with those feelings of resentment and anger and I mean what how how is it best to coach family members to be able to approach an intervention whatever the intended outcome of that intervention may be whether it's treatment or some some other form of structured program um to be able to kind of compartmentalize their personal emotional feelings of of hostility or anger and to be more effective during the conversation itself because I know that's a huge challenge that the people that the addict has probably hurt the most are now in the position to kind of divorce their personal feelings and come to the table with a a solution-based suggestion to the addict, if that question makes sense. No, absolutely. I think the the most important piece of it is, is there's so much harm and wreckage that's taken place in so many cases that it's really best to seek a professional that can um, can guide you and can listen to your individual situation and, and make some recommendations. Um, you know, it, it's ironic that I'm saying that because I did not have a professional at my intervention, and that was, um, you know, people that were close to me that were sort of leading it had said, you know, that that would be a game changer for me, that I would probably not be um, willing to seek treatment because I would not be interested in having a stranger sitting in the room. And, and that was great advice. But the reality is, is that, you know, once a professional has the opportunity to sort of listen to everybody, that might be, um, you know, that, that might be an outcome of that they're actually behind the scenes so that they can, you know, can help adjust and fine-tune. It's really hard for people not to, to to stay on track with an intervention and not get into all of the, this is what you've done to hurt me. Because, um, you know, unfortunately a symptom of the disease is that an a addicted person feels like they're only harming themselves. They don't consider and they don't realize that they are how they are affecting others. So, you know, to kind of it, it may seem obvious to some, but to hear that that part is um, it, it's a you know what you don't need to do is to drill in the shame aspect um, mm-hmm. because it, it, it's too easy for a person to start feeling well you know why bother. Um, right. 
if I've hurt all these people, it's just not even worth it. So it's, you know, the whole idea is to offer hope um, and to keep things positive. And as part of that, do you think the difference between a consequence and a threat? I mean, the, they sound, the, and the end result may be that if you don't seek treatment that I'm going to, I'm not going to allow you to see the children. It can be phrased as a threat or a consequence. And in recovery, we talk a lot about, you know, keeping things in the eye, using I statements, like I feel hurt when you um, fail to show up for our children's activities, for example, and as a result, these things happen. I mean, it's very hard for somebody to, on the receiving end of that to say, no, you don't feel that way. So if I express to you how I feel versus how, you know, how you're acting, it, it sort of changes the frame of reference in which I'm, I'm making the same point, but I'm making it about my feelings instead of what they do. And then, so as part of it, you know, you hear oftentimes that you can't scare an alcoholic or threats don't work. Um, so when you when we're getting to the point where we're talking about consequences, what sort of language would you recommend is the most effective? I mean, they did mention that you need to be prepared to follow through on whatever it is you say a consequence is going to be. That's certainly a key point. Um, I think that's a huge key point. I mean, that yeah. you know, that and every person in the, in the room with the con with in an intervention needs to be prepared to follow through um, because one person doesn't the whole game is off. Yeah. Uh, so, it, I mean, it, it is really that serious, but sort of like, and what you had just said is a perfect way of putting it. Um, you know, the one thing I would add is it, it's okay to also say, I remember when, um, and, and, and those are the times that were really special to me, and I want that person back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so it, it, it that kind of turns turns things around so it eliminates a little bit of the shame piece of it. It's to say you're there and you're worth it and um and we're behind you. And that's an excellent point. Yeah. And, and uh, sorry, go ahead, Amanda. I, w- I was just gonna say, just um backing up just a little bit about the um with that comment about everybody following through. I know um in in the interventions that I've been involved in, or you know, some you know have happened, some haven't. Just talk, by talking to people who are considering an intervention, you know, um, you know, one of the responses I got is, "Well, that just seems so cruel." You know, that's a really harsh thing to do to someone. And one of, um, you know, one thing that I've heard that I think is helpful is, "You can love someone to death." Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you know, by not following through. Um, it actually can put that person in jeopardy, and that that's um, just an, an I think an important thing. And um, another thing that um, I think is important too, you know, getting to the point of you know the shame, you know, shame, shaming someone and trying to avoid that. Um, one thing that I've seen that is helpful is asking everyone to prepare what they're going to say and write it down for a couple of reasons. Um, it's it's a highly charged, you know, emotional time, and it's really hard to keep your own thoughts on track. Um, but also so that the person who's organizing the intervention, you know, um, hopefully a professional can kind of look at what can look at what's written and say, you know, this is not helpful. Saying it this way and help someone reword something because you can say the same thing and be um, constructive or be really destructive. You, you, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, you can make your point, 
um, you know, just what Lisa was saying, you can say it in a way that is helpful or you can really just really sabotage the whole um, the whole intervention and really, you know, that I think it's important not to back someone into a corner. You know, we all know we're all, we're animals and, you know, we get, if you're backed into a corner, um, which is very much what an intervention is in a lot of ways, but there's a there's a kind and helpful way of doing that. Absolutely. I think this is probably a good opportunity also to talk about um, what enabling is, and it's sort of part and parcel of the, but that seems so cruel, or figuring out what consequences you are, are prepared to follow through on what you're not. You know, speaking from personal experience, um, both having been on the receiving end and given interventions before, there's typically a family member or a loved one that is very resistant to um, what they might consider to be too dire a consequence. And I'll just speak from my own personal experience. At the end of my active addiction, if I could have found one person to continue to support my lifestyle, whether it was the postman or a close friend, I was seeking for anybody to justify my continued addictive behavior. Um, And so in preparing for an intervention, especially with a professional's help, it's easier to identify the people that are obviously uncomfortable or could potentially become uncomfortable with following through on consequences. Um, And I, I think sometimes there's some confusion around what enabling actually is and what it means, and maybe we could have a little bit of further discussion around that the difference between trying to be kind and actually enabling somebody to continue in their addictive lifestyle. Do you have any thoughts on that, Lisa? You know, I think that, um, <clears throat> you know, what, what it really comes down to is typically um, shelter, really, a, a place to live. And that that's a common theme of, well, where will they, you know, if, if we follow through with this, I mean, and say that we won't have anything to do or ask them to leave, where are they going to go? Um, and also, you know, the financial uh, addiction, you know, whether it be alcohol or drugs, is, is costly. And, um, you know, enabling is continuing to, to give money, I, I guess, to, to that person. Or, you know, and, and that's, so, so those are sort of the, the two things are, are really finances and shelter and um you know, but but if you say that you but there's options, um, you, can, you know, but you're not saying you have to get out of the house. We're saying you need to seek treatment, you need to do this, and here are your options. Yeah. Um, you know, and and that's the key. But you know, the other part of that also is is make sure that you don't throw out sort of those those empty threats without having a little bit of homework. Um, you know, a, a key thing that people say is that you know the person should be calling treatment facilities and saying they want help, do the, do some homework up front. Um, you know, it, it, it's a troubled time for that person, so it's okay to say, okay, you know, let's find out who, what, in, you know, what our insurance will cover or what our options are available. So that, you know, and for me, it was it was very important my, that my children were a part of the whole um uh, you know, me entering recovery and being um, educated and learning about it. And a family program was instrumental for um, the place that I had chose to seek help. So, if, you know, be willing to kind of throw that out there and, and say that you you won't. But, it, you know, it, it, I have worked with some families that um, 
have had to follow through and you know and, and they have children actually that um they had to ask to leave and mm-hmm. that were living at friends house but eventually you know after you know and a lot of times it's not uncommon if it's not a successful intervention it's not uncommon to um with within a week for that person to have a change of heart so all the more reason that um you know, you got to be willing to to be firm about this and and follow through. That brings up another important point, I think, too, because how how successful intervention is defined is pretty straightforward, and it's saying yes to treatment, to a treatment plan, whatever that looks like, whatever has been predetermined. I think there can be a temptation to the successful intervention would be to get the addict to admit all the damage he or she has done, or that they you know, to even admit that they have a problem. I mean, there are people who go into a treatment program who are still in denial but who have agreed to go into treatment because of the results that they, the consequences they would face if they didn't. So, I mean, I in a couple of the situations I've been involved in, it's it was helpful to have one person in charge of the intervention who said, remember, our goal here is only to get her to admit to go to treatment not to admit to all the wrongdoings or apologize or explain their behavior. It's just yes is what we're looking for or no. And then whatever results, you know, the action plan will fall into place based on their response. Um, Because if if an addict says yes to treatment, it's it's possible to sort of argue with yes, yes, and I want to get my two cents in to prove to you how much you've hurt me. Once the person says yes to treatment, go straight into the action plan of what that treatment plan is going to look like. Um, and that Absolutely. is... Absolutely. And I do yeah. know people, too, that, I mean, personally that I worked with that said, you know, going into treatment, I really don't have a problem, but mm-hmm. I'm just going to get them off of, off of my back. I, I was one of them. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I went into treatment just saying after 30 days, everybody will have calmed down and I can go right back to what I was doing. And, all I needed was a couple of weeks in treatment to get some clarity to understand the, the depth of my problem. Um, so sometimes treatment comes just as a result of the consequences, not as a result of, of even thinking that you want the help. Right. Well, because a lot of times it's, this is the first time that the person has, you know, heard that, oh, wait a minute, everyone sees this. You know, because, you know, when you're in active addiction, you think you're fooling everyone. And so... You know, you know, all of a sudden, all your friends and family there are there, and they're saying, um, "No, we all know when we really care about you, and we think you need help." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so even if the person says no right away, that's that's a that's a big thing to take on. You know, that's kind of like wow. You know, from my own personal experience, it's like, okay, so I'm not fooling anyone. You know, maybe I need to do something about this. It definitely chisels um, because, away at, at self-denial. You know, it sort of ruins the, the uh, lies that we tell ourselves that we're only hurting ourselves and that nobody knows. That's an excellent point. Yeah. I want to talk about something else about uh, just about enabling. Enabling is also after after the fact, after, you know, someone gets into treatment or something. I, um, one thing I think is important is a real simple form of enabling is you know, if you see something, either someone, you know, having, um, you know, uh, one of you said, the like, prelapse. Uh, Lisa, you said that about, you know, being in, like, prelapse, doing something, you know, they get out of treatment, they're doing, you know, there's a, they seem to be doing okay. 
um, but you kind of see something that's a little bit off, like they're, you know, they're they're being deceptive about something, or, you know, you maybe you suspect that they've somehow got their hands on some alcohol or something like that. Enabling is pretending not to see that, not acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to do, but to say, you know, hey, you know, I saw that, and you know, or hey, you know, things don't seem right. You know, is something going on? Are you really okay? You know, um, and making that the norm, you know, because that, and, but also in a loving way, not in a, hey, you know, I, you know, I, I, you're, you've been drinking. I mean, that's going to, ha- that does happen. Let's just be real here. That does happen. It's really hard for, it takes a long time for a family to um, start to trust a person again. But, you know, if you want to be helpful, I think you know. I, I, turning a blind eye is not helpful. That's enabling. Absolutely. Um, well, you have to remember too that you know it, it, we're kind of talking about like post-intervention, um, like a follow-up intervention, and that's common too. But you know, it, it, for the loved ones, you could you know say all the cards were on the table. You have to remember back to that day. So. From that point forward, it's your job, you know, just as you're asking a person to be honest, and um, you have to be honest as well. And if if you're suspecting something, it's your responsibility to say something. I'm concerned because. Mm -hmm. And here, you know, here are the reasons. And and being specific, too, with that, instead of like, you know, you're acting funny or strange or... I mean, I think because I've I've had people post intervention or post while I was in early recovery, come at me with sort of vague suspicions and accusations, and that was a not a helpful thing. But if somebody said I'm I'm concerned about this specific behavior, like I I noticed that you're not attending the meetings you said you go to, or you haven't been returning my phone calls, something specific was helpful in that instead of vague references. Right. No, that, that's that's good. And before we kind of move on to, the, to that, there's also, a, you know, there's another um, form of intervention, which is called the ARISE model, and that's sort of no secrets, no surprises, and it's a gradual process, which um, is very, it, it's different, and it's sort of, the, the whole goal is, is that's sort of when the cat's out of the bag. Everybody knows um you know, life is, is affected in so many different ways. And this person you just don't think is going to say yes. So, you know, so it, it's a gradual process where the person is actually invited to their own intervention and it's, it takes place over months. Um, and the whole goal is is to show this person um, the new life and recovery that's available to them. Mm-hmm. So I guess all the more reason because, it, there, you know, it, an intervention is sort of what we typically have seen on TV, I guess, in that, in the reality show. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that that's why a professional can kind of say, listen, this is, you know, here's the specifics of your situation. Let's come up with a plan that's going to work for your, for your individual um you know, the, the person themselves or just as a result of it. it it's very, it, it's not typical, the ARISE model, but um, but it's an option. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it is an option. It, you know, the goal is, is as long as the person is alive and believing, there's hope. 
and and that's and to not give up hope. And so, you know, Amanda, you made a good point. You know, is that you know what are you what are you willing to live with? Because if you wait for a person to hit their rock bottom, the rock bottom could very easily be um, death, and you don't want to wait till that. Mm-hmm. I I wanted yeah. to back up. Kind of, we, we glossed over it pretty quickly at the beginning of of what we how we opened the show in terms of um, how do you know if the person if the loved one needs an intervention, and we referenced the fact that if if the person has repeated negative consequences as a result of their drinking or drug use, um, whether they're physical, emotional, or legal, um, and continues to behave that way despite these negative consequences, that's certainly one red flag. Um, but for somebody who's out there listening who believes pretty strongly that they that someone they care about needs an intervention, what sorts of things should they be looking for? And then what are the first steps? Because I, I think sometimes it's pretty common within a family system that some people see things for what they are and other people would like to remain in a, more of a denial that the person may not be that bad. Um, would the recommendation be that the person who feels an intervention may be necessary reach out first to a professional and have a consultation or a combination of that and approaching other family members who may be receptive to the idea that something needs to be done? Because I think it's it's hard to embark on this, um, and it may be, let's, I'm just going to give a, this is not a personal example, but if you've got a family member where there's a mother, a father, and two siblings, and a best friend, and everybody but the person's mother agrees that there's a problem, they can go ahead and contact a professional and set things in motion, and it may be that the mother doesn't need to be included in the process if she doesn't believe there's an issue. I mean, it can be very hard to get these things rolling with the right people involved. Would you recommend that the first step would be um, receiving sort of independent, objective, professional advice? Or circling the, wagon, or circling the wagons within the family members that you know also see the problem for what it is? I would absolutely, and you know, it, even if it's you and one other person, um, you know, and you haven't, you don't, you're not sure if the others are on board, um, or if it's just, it's just you suspect it, and you're not, you know, that, then seek professional help to say this is this is my situation, and maybe you could help. Um, you know, address this with the, the different family members because sometimes it's it's just so close up and personal that um, an outsider, is, you know, can can be the one that would show them. And you know, having that outsider, I mean, like I said in in my personal situation, that was not going to work for me. Um, but you know, had a professional been sought, I, you know, the the right professional would have said, well, here here's what we would lay out, and um, and that's exactly what happened. Is, is it was laid out perfectly. So I would say your, the first step would be, you know, and, and who is that individual that could be, you know, I mean, call your, call your insurance company and, um, or, you know, you just licensed drug and alcohol counselors, a therapist, um, an interventionist, you know, is, is certainly, but, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I, I Googled this and I found this interventionist, that, you know, three states away. Um, it, it's best to probably start out local mm-hmm. and and then they can help you with the right resources. Yeah. And then also the team, one of the first steps too, and I can remember this can actually be this all of the reasons that, a, that an addict may give for not wanting to seek treatment, whether it's inpatient or some other structured program, 
I mean, those are the things to think about in terms of the pre-planning process. I mean, if the person is employed full-time, does the employer need to be involved? Is that appropriate? Do they have vacation time coming up? Does a person have pets or or, or children? Who's going to take care of those things? I mean, it, this is why it's not a spur-of-the-moment kind of situation because um, anticipating all of the reasons why they're going to give that treatment isn't possible you know, sometimes, I mean, people who are high-functioning in active addiction, it can be very difficult because they are able to keep down a full-time job and they are able to, you know, for the most part, hold their family together, but it does not mean that their situation is not dire. Um, right. And, and so marshalling the right people to be involved who are going to be part of the support system should the person say yes to treatment is, you know, that takes time and certainly a lot of organization to do that. Um and well, and the other, you know, and there's other options also depending on the individual situation, whether, you know, it could be that it's um, an intensive outpatient program with teamed up with the recovery coach. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, you know, what you're referring to, Ellie, is a true, like, 30-day program, which is, you know, most effective but not always um, possible, whether yeah. it be, you know, financially or for whatever you know, whether it's their work commitments or whatever else. So it's really kind of looking at not only sort of the intervention things, but what what's the treatment plan that's appropriate as well or options. Yep. yep. Well, maybe and I think, little, um, let's go ahead, Amanda, sorry. I was just going to say sometimes, it, you know, recovery is not easy and sometimes it takes more than, you know, one attempt. And, you know, you're 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 looking – I'm going to lose my train of thought. You're looking for the person to get help, and sometimes presenting someone with a 30-day plan immediately—that's really overwhelming, you know. So, so if you can get agreed to get them, you know, sometimes there may be a first step. I mean, this is this is not a professional opinion. This is a personal opinion. Um, you know, sometimes it may be, you know, we want you to do this, and. You know, and if that doesn't work, you know, we can talk about, you know, the next step, you know, like an inpatient 30-day program. But, you know, like Lisa was saying, doing an outpatient, you know, it really, it, every, I guess every case is so you so unique. Every, you know, each person is different. I know, um, well, I mean, we'll just throw it out there. You guys plan my intervention. And um, we're smart enough to have my employer there because, um, I I wouldn't have I would have like just dug in my heels at the you know if I didn't if at, at the thought of losing my job you know I I own my own home and I you know was on my own you know just taking care of myself and so that would have been financially devastating to me um, but I I did want help um, you know we talked about that earlier sometimes a person actually wants the help but doesn't know how to go about getting it. Um, so sometimes it can be, you know, it, it it doesn't necessarily have to be the extreme. I think a lot of people think, well, intervention, if you're going that far, then the person's automatically going away for 30 days. But there can be, you know, some people are successful with different type of programs. Um, and some people, you know, require an inpatient, you know, right from the get-go. It's, it, you know, each, we're all individuals, I guess is what it boils down to. And the, you know, the one thing, though, depending on um, this, depending on the substance, that is is the problem. And you know, it True. is is medical detox. 
um, should always be a factor in this. Um, yeah. It, you know, it, it, especially with alcohol, because um, detox from alcohol can, you know, can be deadly if not medically supervised. And it sounds kind of, it, it, it sounds scary, but it's real. And, you know, and, and sometimes just even if you just say, we, you know, this is the plan, you know, in, in a three to five day commitment, that's, that's a lot easier to, um, to swallow than a 30 day program. Yeah, and we did a show called Let's Talk About Rehab where we outlined in more detail the different kinds of treatment plans, like what's the difference between a detox and an inpatient treatment or an outpatient treatment, and that is one resource that people can listen to that show because if most people who enter this have not participated in this world before, and it just underscores the importance of involving somebody who does understand um you know the logistics and the obstacles insurance is a is a big snarly knot oftentimes to get things paid for um in our state detoxes are always i'm in massachusetts detoxes are always covered but longer term stays are rarely covered um but you can't you know unless you understand the vernacular of the world of recovery and addiction it's very difficult to understand the differences between these things and what they do for a particular um addict and so again venturing into these waters without somebody who's objective usually somebody in recovery who can be objective that was the case um with my intervention and some that I've participated in where we didn't have a professional involved but we did have people in recovery who knew this world um and who understood what the different treatment plans entailed but the starting points of um what kind of treatment plan how would they pay for it and and um what their specific needs are is much easier to tackle with somebody who who gets this who gets how to go about doing it because it's a confounding process especially in the US our our healthcare coverage is uh is particularly difficult in this regard. Yeah, it's Absolutely. changing, but it is difficult. And I I just want to say again just because, you know, just thinking that there's, you know, there may be family members listening to this show that haven't heard necessarily heard one of our shows before um again you can um there the alcohol withdrawal is one of the most deadliest it's really dangerous and it really does require medical supervision i don't think people most people understand that because you know people go on a bender and they think they're just hung over and that the um the i didn't learn this until i went into treatment the consequences are oftentimes or the 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 real danger is two to three days after, and so um, after someone stops drinking, so it, it really is important to get medical supervision um, for and someone the, and to the most get harmful off their symptoms. Drug. Yeah, the most harmful sy- symptoms are, 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 you know, the things that you worry about are a spike in blood pressure, stroke, seizure. They're completely asymptomatic until they're happening. And so mm. unlike withdrawal from a drug like heroin, which is not fatal, it just feels like it is, the symptoms are very obvious. Um, somebody can seize at any moment or have a stroke or a blood pressure spike, and they won't even know it's happening. And typically that that is the case with daily drinkers, but not exclusively. A binge drinker could go on a binge and stop drinking and three days later have a medical situation that's pretty serious. Um, so a physician is another helpful resource in this case to be to get a medical evaluation for somebody, and there are um, medications out there that can help them safely detox, but it needs to be under the supervision of a professional. And I think it, I, I always underscore this point with women in particular. We've talked about this on a recent show, 
how reluctant women are to I mean we're you know, we work full time or we're full time parents and we can really we can we feel as though we're the center of the universe and we need to hold things together at all costs. Um and so a lot of times women will try to do this in secret or in private and think that they can handle it and it's uh alcohol affects our bodies in much more dangerous ways than it does for men. And so it's particularly important for women to make sure they have a safe medical detox. And it's surprising how, I mean, I've seen somebody have a seizure weeks after they stopped drinking, um, and we know they were a daily drinker, but it's, you know, it's not uncommon for a physician to hear, uh, have someone come and say that they're struggling with alcohol and want to stop, and they they can help you through that. Right. Yeah, and there's also, <clears throat> which is kind of new to, to things, is that there are organizations that will help you um, that if you call them, and this would be sort of pre-intervention work, um, that if you call them and give them the, you know, the insurance information, they can do the homework for you at no cost. And wow. Here, you know, and so, I mean, I, I'm also in Massachusetts, and in some instances, there is insurance companies that will not cover a 28-day program in state, but will cover it in full out of state. Interesting. Um, wow. So you know, if, if anybody is is sort of interested in you know, we're kind of talking about reach out to a professional, and there's a there's a few other companies like that. Um, you know, if somebody's interested in finding out that information of. Now what? What do I do now? Um, you can reach out to the parent organization of Shining Strong, and um, we can help point you in the right direction. And the, the laws are also changing a lot. Um, I mean, they haven't. Unfortunately, there have been changes in the medical and uh, the insurance companies have found a way around certain things, which um, it's, that's a whole different topic. But, um, you know, things are changing. You know, hopefully, you know, the the country, the world is recognizing that this is, you know, I forget what number, but it's one of the top medical problems that we have in the United States and other countries, I'm sure, as well. Um, so there is, there are changes, there are reforms happening. Um, they're just not quite there yet. No, hopefully we're on on the road to that sometimes. Right. In the foreseeable well, future. Because sometimes people will say, you know, with, with intervention of, um, well, we don't have the money, you know. So you know, make sure that you kind of examine all options because it doesn't necessarily mean an out of pocket pay. There is help available. It just takes a little work to find it. Mhm. And I think the silver lining to the discussion about an intervention and and likely the eventual intervention itself, is that in the entire family system it serves to break down denial, most importantly for the addict, but for the people who who love them. Because I think that even having these open conversations within a family system or a support system is, is, is a real key to unifying the people who are ultimately going to be helping them through the recovery process. Um, whether it happens the first time the discussion happens or the 11th time the discussion happens, it, for, for people to be able to pull together um, and work, you know, in a unified front to support the addict's recovery. You hear people say oftentimes that, you know, they'll, they will do anything to help an addict recover, but they're not going to do any more to help them destroy themselves. And the more people that are on board in that addict's life, the better chance they have of getting better. 
And um, so the, just even beginning these conversations with people about somebody you have concerns with is, is already taking a step in the right direction. Right. Well, we're getting you know, to... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and I think that, too, is, that, you know, people kind of look at an intervention of uh, as ganging up on, and it, it's not the case. It can, it can be the most loving, um, to, you know, it, it, the loving thing you can do for someone. Uh, because, you know, the person who it may just want the help, and that's just all they need to, is to tip them over to realize that they've got a group of people behind them. On that note, I mean, I think towards the end of the show, what we usually do is we go by, we go around and talk about, you know, something that's been helpful or to a takeaway from the show. But since all three of us have been on the receiving end of an intervention, I thought I'd add a new twist to that. Um, what was really poignant for each of us as part of our own intervention? Was there a moment that really was helpful or caught your attention or that you think back on that really sort of shifted your focus in terms of maybe there's hope and I can get well and these people are here to support me. You know, maybe just spend a couple of minutes, each of us, talking about um, what it was like to be on the receiving end and what was helpful and, and maybe even what wasn't. Lisa, we can start with you. Sure. Okay. Um, I, You know, I think what, what was helpful, you know, my family came in from um, from out of state for my intervention and and that was um that was key i don't i don't have any family nearby so i i was really surprised that it meant that much to um you know for my family that i i, I meant that much to them um my children were at an age that you would probably question i think that they were 12 and 12 and 13 in that age range that you would say is it appropriate? That that was very impactful um, because part of my reason was is I'm I'm a mother. I I can't go away. I can't do anything. I've got this is what I have to do. And to see them saying they they want their mom back, it was a variety of people that were there for me. Um, I think kind of looking that that really made the difference. I was ready. I I definitely was ready. The one thing that I think wasn't so helpful was um, there were probably too many people at my intervention, and um, some of the people, you know, I had not, you know, w- were significant in a different part of my life, but were kind of irrelevant at that point. Mm-hmm. So that um, that maybe, you know, it, it limits the numbers. I think is sort of what, yep. what my takeaway was. Yep. Amanda, how about you? Oh well, I was at my my intervention broke a little bit of the rules because I had been arrested, so I don't think there was a lot of time for planning, like a day. Um, <laughs> but I was very, <laughs> um, I was really grateful. Um, actually, as soon as everyone walked in the door, I I I was one of those people that wanted help. Um, and just didn't had no idea how to do that. I had no idea how to stop drinking, and I just did not know what to do with myself. And just like Lisa said, I was blown away. I, I at that moment, at that day, I absolutely hated myself. Um, and to see that everyone still loved me and wanted me to get better um, made meant a lot to me. Um, mm-hmm. And mine was definitely not conventional because I agreed to it the minute I opened the door. 
And so there wasn't, you know, people didn't have to um, go around and say what they were going to say to me. And we just had a really nice conversation, you know. Um, I, I still felt like awful. But um, I think one key thing, and, and you know, most people, I think that, that any addict listening to this might cringe, but uh, my friends were smart enough to have um, someone from my work there. And that was huge for me. I was all about work. That was like the only thing that I had that I could that I valued myself um, from was from work and the thought of going away anywhere, leaving work. I mean, I was the type of person who would go in dead hungover, you know, and um, and get my job done. And you know, I I I worked no matter what. It was it was really my identity. So that was huge. Um, having that there, but, you know, and just having my friends and family and, you know, uh, um, my stepfather, my best friend, Ellie, is, you know, was in recovery. That was helpful to me. I think, you know, we don't really talk about it, but if you if there's someone in the person's life who's in recovery, that's a good person to reach out to, too. Um, so, you know, having, you know, having people there who had been there um, certainly helped me a lot. Um, but I, you know... I just think about it, and, you know, um, one thing, too, is, like, how do you know when someone needs help? In my case, it was pretty obvious. But um, I know, Ellie, you had said, you know, when you started to think about it, like, the light was gone from my eyes. You know, there was was something off. And, you know, and how do you figure that out? You have to start talking to people. And so I didn't give you guys much time, but everyone talked, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, this absolutely needs to happen, and, um, and I'm, I'll be forever grateful. Yeah, it's uh, that's powerful from both of you, and and helpful. Thank you. And I, um, you know, I have the dubious distinction of having been on the receiving end of several different kinds of interventions. Um, the first time I got sober, I was an example of somebody who did not want to get sober. Um, and uh, you know, I I think that. The first mini formal intervention I had was just my immediate family. It was organized by my husband, and and uh, I was angry. I was really angry, and um, but it served the purpose that Lisa referenced earlier. I think it was Lisa where I realized the cat was out of the bag, that I could no longer hide um, the full extent of my addiction. My husband had known how bad it was for some time, and he had been all alone in that knowledge for a while. So involving my family certainly um, was a support for him, and it was an eye opener for me. And uh, there weren't there were, consequences weren't really threatened at that point or or stated at that point. It was more um, a combination. It was really the definition of tough love. But one of the things I remember from that is my father saying to me, "You know, you do know that we love you no matter what, but you need to get help." And just hearing somebody say to me that they loved me even in the state that I was in was really, really powerful. Um, You know, it wasn't unconditional. It was coming with, you know, you've got to help yourself to get our help. Um, But that was powerful. And, you know, I've had a variety of interventions, many interventions, one from Amanda in particular, when I was already in treatment and trying to leave. Um, And to be able to have somebody in my life who, uh, you know, Amanda's my very, very, very good friend, but also somebody who I respected in recovery who could come at me at my level and to say, you need to stay in treatment and you need to see this out and know that she understood how I felt 
both in active addiction and in recovery. Um, you know, I wasn't married to her. She wasn't my parent. She wasn't my child. She was just somebody who wanted to help. And sometimes the message that needs to be said is not delivered from somebody in the person's immediate family, but from somebody who is, um, you know, in recovery or who really understands what the journey of addiction and recovery is all about. And um, so I think one of the takeaways I had from all of those experiences is that even though I was angry, and boy, did I get angry at Amanda when she, you know, gave me an intervention and treatment, I did not respond very well. But it did not take very long after for me to be extremely grateful because when the person you love, and I'm speaking from my own experience, gets some clarity, gets some recovery, they really are able to see an intervention for what it is, which is an extreme example and power of love. Um, because it's the, the saddest case, I think, is an addict who's really in trouble, who doesn't have anybody in their life to step in and say, we love you too much to watch you continue to do this to yourself. And um, so take heart because, you know, when somebody enters into recovery, they are able to see uh, with with clear eyes exactly how meaningful and uh, loving this kind of action really is. And um, so it's yeah. it's a very, very difficult thing for everybody involved. But as Amanda said, you can love an addict to death, and sometimes making choices which seem harsh are, in fact, the best thing that you can do for somebody who's struggling. Um so I think we're at the at the end of our show here. Um I'll just I will do go around really quickly though. Is there anything, Lisa, that you wanted to highlight or emphasize or clarify or any any parting thoughts? I I think that the one thing is kind of even what I started on is, is one size doesn't fit all. Um everybody is unique and um you, you know, the an intervention does not have to fit the script. It it can be um fine tuned for your specific situation. Good, excellent point. I think we all have that um, intervention TV show in our heads when we when we say the word intervention, so that's mm-hmm. an important thing to clarify. That's a very extreme <laughs> example, to be sure. Amanda, what about you? Um, I would say um, a couple things. If you're if you're you know if you're debating if you're worried about someone and you're debating on if you um, should do an intervention, um, I would say you know trust your gut. Um, you know you're seeing something, something's off. You might not know exactly what it is, um, and reach out to someone. Someone you know, like we said, a professional, or you can start with you know a trusted friend or family member. You know, just to to check your gut to say, hey, are you are you sensing something wrong too? And and take it from there. And then you know that you know. But try, you know, it, you're. If you love someone and you're worried about them, it is worth it to um, speak out. So many people are just afraid to do so, and like you know, like we all just said, um, if the person gets into recovery, they they um, they will appreciate what you have done, and absolutely. Um, it's just, yeah, they, you know, it's so it's the it's the best gift that you can give someone, and I'm I'm forever grateful. Um, and um, actually, Ellie, you said this to me is you know, um, and I think Lisa brought it up too. You know, what are you willing to live with? Are you willing to um, watch that person continue to ruin their lives, or um, you know, you can at least give it a try, try to help. Absolutely, and and, and, and also that if. Um, 
you know, nobody has to go through that alone. It's a person who's, you know, the loved one. It's a the more support you can muster, the the better off you'll be because it's a journey for everybody involved, not just the person you're trying to help. It's a very difficult thing to try to forge on your own. Um, so I just we wanted to note as a parting thought that to find a professional or intervention addiction specialist, most of the information is compiled in a state by state basis. Um, from the research that we have done in our own personal experience, and I'm speaking from the U.S. at this point. Um, so we can't really provide you with a comprehensive list of these services, but there are, there's plenty of information available on the Internet. Um, but just be sure to do your research to ensure the intervention service or treatment center meets your needs. Um, I personally think that finding an interventionist that's not associated with a treatment center is a, is a more helpful or, or, you know, an addiction counselor or some of the other resources that we've mentioned is a more helpful first step um, because the treatment centers, while they some of them do have very fine resources there, they are geared towards their own particular treatment options. Um, but also bear in mind that should treatment be necessary, that securing a treatment bed can be a very difficult process and it can be time-consuming and there is often a waiting list, and so factoring this into your planning process is important. And that's another reason why starting the conversation sooner rather than later, once the person is in crisis, you don't have a lot of time to find just the right program. Um, and so as Amanda said, if your gut is telling you something is wrong, start those conversations now. Also, reviewing all the insurance information, if it's applicable to the person, is key. But don't be totally disheartened if no insurance is available. You can make inquiries at your state's level, again, for the U.S., and find out what state services exist because most states do have programs that are available to everybody. And so I will close the show by saying that we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, ShiningStrong.org, and there you will find links to all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. You'll also find a link to Jean's blog, Unpickled, as well as our email address, thebubblehour at gmail.com. Let us know your feedback about tonight's show format and any other topic suggestions. And if you'd like to go directly to the Bubble Hour's website, there that is at thebubblehour.com. And there you can listen to our shows directly and follow a link to subscribe to our podcast. We are also on Facebook, so please be sure to like our page. And we thank all of you for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you all have a great evening. Thanks again, Lisa, for being on our show. We always love having you here. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Lisa. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks. Everybody have a good night. Good night. Take care. Bye-bye. Good night. <laughs>